0: It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses.
1: Sego, bon, Ani, bonjour. I am Kathy Sabokin, and this is Moment of Truth on 106.5 Element FM in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. And I'm filling in today for David Moses. My first guest, Element FM Parliament Hill reporter Caroline O'Neill. Good morning, Caroline.
2: Good morning, Kathy. Thanks so much for having me.
1: Yes, welcome to a new week. And the House yes. sits again today, so you're going to be busy.
2: Yes, lots going on, but always an exciting time.
1: Always an exciting time. And top of list, what's in?
2: Yeah, there's definitely a lot to look to see what will happen now that the House is back in session. Also, now that the Prime Minister has been in the country for a few days. And he is speaking to the House of Commons about what's been happening with the blockades.
1: Yes, he's, he is doing that today. And as well, the New Democratic Party wants an emergency debate.
2: That's right. And then we also hear that there are some federal British Columbia leaders who are also waiting on a request with Wet'suwet'en Hereditary Chiefs. Yes. So we should see some action going forward this week.
1: And National Assembly of First Nations Chief Perry Bellegarde spoke this morning, too. He was calling for calm and constructive That's dialogue.
2: Right. Yeah. And that was one of the things that he was really saying that, you know, the government leaders do need to take the time to meet with people And that there could be, I think, a way to come to some sort of agreement if those meetings take place. The other thing that was mentioned as well is that the blockades, many would say, have certainly achieved their purpose. But some people are saying that public support could start to dwindle if people are hurt by things like propane and food shortages. But then other people would argue that the point of action like that is to inconvenience.
1: Well, right. And I know that the Indigenous people at the blockades are saying, that's great, we open up dialogue, but we don't want just that. We don't want the pipeline.
2: Yeah, so I think, you know, there are going to be some very raw conversations over the next few weeks. And I think that certainly the minority government will have a real decision to make.
1: Yes, they will. Now, you've been, you've been following the protests that are taking place in Ottawa. So tell us what you've heard, what you've seen, what's happened
2: Right. So, last week, I was at the Justice Ministry building on Wellington Street here in Ottawa, and there were Indigenous youth who were taking solidarity action in support of the Wet'suwet'en Nation and the hereditary chiefs there, and they actually stayed in the building for over 50 hours, and they said this was because they were looking to David Lametti to take some action. So Lametti is our Justice Minister and our Attorney General, and the Indigenous youth and their allies felt that it was his responsibility to call in the RCMP to stand down and what and They also had a list of other demands as well. One of the things that I really noticed that came out of this was that the federal government is characterizing this as a provincial issue. So they're saying that the Attorney General actually cannot intervene on an issue like this and that the RCMP do not have to respond to a federal, provincial, or municipal government.
1: And what are they saying, though? The, the, the young people there, especially? There have been a um, lot of.
2: Yeah, you know, lots of different things. I think that one of the biggest takeaways that I think is something that should be sitting on all Canadians is that the young people that I was speaking to and that I heard at the press conference say that reconciliation is dead in Canada, which I think is a statement that is would, I think everybody should be reflecting on that.
1: And they think it's dead because of the pipeline decision for the pipeline to go through. Like what, what brings on like complete reconciliation is dead.
2: Well, I think it's a culmination of a lot of things. I think that many, many of the young people I spoke with say that they feel that reconciliation is used as a political prop. So, they're arguing that some governments will use it to appeal to diverse voters young voters and indigenous voters to get into office but then they forget about it once they actually start making policy
1: and what are they saying the young people are they this, other than just it's it's dead is it is this not at least opening up conversations
2: One of the things that they did say was that they were happy with the allies who were taking the time. So where I was, right, people were there for well over two days. And there were people who dropped off food. There were people who dropped off blankets. There were non-Indigenous allies who did stay with them the entire time as well. And they said that they hoped that that was something that was really brought forward to Wet'suwet'en. Because, again, they're saying that their action isn't about them. It's about standing in solidarity with the Wet'suwet'en who are in northern British Columbia.
1: Right. There was a huge thousand strong protest in Toronto over the weekend. And exactly. not and all Indigenous. Actually, they're getting a lot of support from a lot of people.
2: Yeah. And there was even some action here in Ottawa yesterday as well. And people actually took their action onto the Rideau Canal.
1: Amazing. Well, also, just an update on Via Rail. Via Rail is preparing to resume part of its passenger rail service as the That's anti Pipeline protests might affect freight and passenger train routes, and of course it has been. The company says it's been notified by Canadian National Railway and Partial Service will resume this Thursday to and from Ottawa and Quebec City with a stop in Montreal.
2: Yeah, so definitely some big news for people here in Ottawa.
1: Yes. Almost all the other Via trains, except for Sudbury, White River and Churchill, the pass routes, remains cancelled. Protesters have been blocking, of course, near Belleville and in certain areas in B.C., and it's all to support those Wet'suwet'en chiefs who are opposed to the construction of the coastal gasoline natural pipeline through their traditional territories in northwestern B.C. I think it's a complicated issue because on the one hand there are a lot of people who need to get from A to B. They need to take the train. There are There was talk of possible layoffs from CN. So it's a complicated issue, yet there are the the protesters who want to get their point across.
2: It's a complicated issue, but I also find it really fascinating to see the dialogue surrounding the inconvenience part of the solidarity action right now. Here in Ontario, we, we've also been inconvenienced by a different protest, right? Teachers have been taking to the picket lines at some points twice a week for quite some time now. And, There are parents who are being financially inconvenienced, and I think it's interesting the way that perhaps we're framing or looking at the two separate entities, and I'd be really interested to see a content analysis in a year from now looking at how both are covered.
1: I think so. Now, other than Wet'suwet'en, and that's going to take up a lot of today, any other issues?
2: Well, you know, one of the things, actually, and this does go back to what's what, to what and that you brought up, I think that is really interesting, is that you said how the NDP are asking House Commons Speaker Anthony Rota for an emergency debate on the blockades. Something I have found to be so fascinating about the NDP's role in all of this is that NDP's federal leader, Jacmeet Singh, has been very clear that he does not agree with the pipeline, but it is somebody within his party who probably has the most power right now to end it. And I find it interesting that we've been talking a lot about what the federal government can do, the provincial jurisdiction. I wonder if there has been a meeting between the British Columbia Premier and Jagmeet Singh. They're both members of the same party. Good point. And I do wonder if maybe for people who are looking for action, would that make some sort of a a difference in the situation? Because it does seem like there is that communication disconnect right now.
1: Yes, it does. Well, hopefully something will get resolved today and get moving, I'm Sure. I mean, and they're, I mean they're at least all sides are talking today.
2: Yeah, so there should, there should definitely be a lot of movement coming towards the end of this week.
1: Something should be, should be shaking. All right, other issues on the azen, uh, agenda uh, on the Hill.
2: Yeah, so one of the actual things that was supposed to be the real headache for the Liberals um, was the Tech Frontier project, which is another energy project, and that was supposed to really be the thing that was going to be giving the minority government a bit of a hard day today. Now, obviously, that is still something that will come up on the agenda, so they will be talking about that energy project, but I do think that for the most part that will likely be sidelined or perhaps some of the coverage of it will be sidelined, just because what's to what I think will take much more priority right now. But I do think it's interesting that some of the biggest issues facing our minority government right now, are energy projects. And I think that has a lot to do with some of the communications that they have given on issues of reconciliation, also issues of climate change, and issues of infrastructure.
1: So I just want to jump back to the Wet'suwet'en protest. How do you think the media coverage is being perceived based on everyone you're talking to?
2: Um, I think that there's some real distrust in the media right now. Um, that was definitely something I saw in the coverage I did. And it was really enlightening for me to see the way that the media is interacting with Wet'suwet'en and the way that in turn people are interacting with us. Um, One of the things, Kathy, that I think really stuck with me was when the young Indigenous peoples and their allies that I was interviewing last week said reconciliation is dead. I thought about the fact that in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, the media is listed in some of the call to actions. And that does make me wonder, again, we do need Indigenous peoples if we ever want to achieve reconciliation. And it makes me wonder about what we contributed to, to get to that point. And I think that every outlet and different newsroom perhaps has some different resources or ideas about how they should be covering indigenous peoples and communities. But I think it does show that there are still some real gaps. And I think in seeing the way that we were able to do some of our coverage and also seeing perhaps some of the things that were upsetting people, there's a long way to go.
1: That's certainly a positive because a lot of it is just glossed over. For example, There is a a blockade on the rail line because of Mm -hmm. anti pipeline protesters. Now, oftentimes, as you know, in in our business, we don't have time to say a lot more. But this is where we can in our talk show right now, at least we can dive into the issues. But I think that's what happens. I'm just generalizing because a lot of media doesn't have a lot of time. You want to hit, you've only got a certain amount of time, you've got to tell 10 stories, and things get a little bit too diluted.
2: You know what, and I I think that's one of the things that I was kind of watching, and maybe some of the own inner conflict I had watching the coverage and participating last week was, I love media, I I think that we're under-resourced and understaffed right now, and I know that we can, we're kind of in this transitional phase, but I also can't help but think, can we do better? And I think in watching the way different people were interacting with Indigenous sources, the answer is yes, we can definitely do better, and I think that those are things that we can do that don't require all of the time in the world and all of the money in the world. One of the takeaways I had was people will talk to you. Um, there was one media conference where questions weren't really an option, but I went and asked afterwards if I could do an interview, and I was granted one because I had spent the past three days building up the trust. So I think being respectful and listening. And, you know, if you are at an action, um, a solidarity action, and it's young people, like, bear in mind that would you treat other children in a similar way when you're interviewing them? I think that they're are a lot of things we can do that I don't think cost time or take up any resources that could make a big difference. People, you know, the people who are taking action, they want coverage, right? That's part of the reason why they're doing this, but they don't necessarily want to be insulted by media either.
1: Agreed. Yes. It can be very sensitive. It's difficult if you have a microphone shoved in your face and you're asked questions and if, and if, especially if you're young, you know, you just, you aren't sure.
2: One of the things that I was trying to bear in mind when I was doing the coverage, and I think one of the things that's helpful to me too is I'm, I'm short, I'm little, I'm unassuming, so I'm not necessarily a threatening person from the get-go and I think that's helpful, but if you're 19 and you've been up for two days and this is an issue that matters to you so much that you've put your life on hold for this, you haven't been able to shower, you, know, you maybe haven't been eating the best, I think that as a journalist you need to factor that in mind and think about the questions you're asking. I'm not saying don't ask questions, definitely do, but Would you ask someone else questions the same way? Uh, Would you press on the same issue? Are you asking a leading question? Are you trying to get some sort of reaction? I would think about all of that. And I would also think if this is a group that has planned sustained action like this, if we have a press conference and maybe we're not, you know, we're not kind of showing our best selves as the media, think about the fact that there could be some real consequences the next day. And that was something we saw.
1: Yeah. Prime Minister Trudeau, he was out of town, but he decided to come back. What's up with that?
2: You know, this is one where I think the Prime Minister has been sending some incredibly mixed signals on reconciliation and if it truly matters to him. And I think, again, going back to what people were saying about, you know, they feel that sometimes governments are pushing forward a reconciliation agenda only in words but not in meaning. It's times like this. I think that when people are when there are blockades happening across our country and there are people upset about what's happening that's a time to come home i'm not sure how much at that specific point the travels abroad matter and i understand that we're an international player i understand that we have a role to play in this world but we can't play a role in this world in a in a good way if we're in crisis at home so i think that he came home great but i think that he should have been in ottawa or even in northern british columbia much earlier i do wonder the difference it would make kathy if the prime minister had made it first stop Northern British Columbia and gone with minimal security and met with people.
1: That's a really good point. I think we need more of that.
2: Like and I think this is one the thing that one. goes back to. Exactly. Um, when I was speaking with the, the different people that I was interviewing, most people were appreciative that I sat around and wasn't peppering questions and that I sat and chatted with people. And I think that's another similar thing, right? One of the reasons why the meeting that Mark Miller had attended and I go over the weekend lasted nine hours was because I don't think people feel heard right now.
1: I think they are being heard, though. I do. I think think they've
2: taken the action, for sure. Yes.
1: Okay, another issue, the coronavirus. Yes. We have that cruise ship off Japan.
2: That's right. So there are Canadians who are on a quarantine ship that's over in Yokohama, but they are expected to be on a flight coming out Thursday, but we're still not sure who exactly is going to make it on the plane. So what we've heard from officials is that only healthy Canadians will be able to make the trip. But that just got a little more um, confusing because, according to Japanese health authorities, there are 88 more cases of the COVID-19 virus on board. So we're going to have to see who actually does qualify as a healthy Canadian before before people are able to make that plane ride.
1: Talk about a nightmare of a vacation
2: for I a lot of people. Imagine. And yeah,
1: then when they I get wanted- back here, they have to go into quarantine for another 14 days.
2: That's right. One of the things that I think just must be so devastating beyond the health impact would be the mental impact of feeling so isolated. And people around the world, right, for people who are in lockdown cities like Wuhan, I can't imagine what people must be going through every day just trying to keep their spirits up and just trying to stay a little bit engaged. And then as you mentioned, to come home from this trip and to still not be able to make it to your home because you're either going to be in Cornwall or CFB Trenton, like that just must be so tiring.
1: Very tiring. And you just don't know it's always difficult when you're in limbo. You're not quite sure. You don't know. Am I going to get on the plane? You know, When will I get off of here? It's not like a, a vacation when you go and you know the date you leave, you know the date you come back. This just, this is hard.
2: The other thing too, I think on the research perspective, Kathy, that's probably very concerning about this is that because COVID-19 is still so new, as we're trying to figure out different ways to kind of see if there's a way to alleviate some of the spread of this disease, it does seem like in this case, quarantining the cruise ships didn't work because I guess in those close quarters, it just continued to spread. So I think for doctors and scientists, this is a little bit of an unfortunate development as well. But there are some people who are on board that specific Yokohama cruise line who say that they haven't experienced any of the symptoms and they will most likely make it on the plane. But I do think, again, for those doctors and researchers, it must just be a constant grind of trying to see if they can get at least one step ahead of this virus.
1: Yes, and then one of the doctors in, in China died, one of the key health yeah, workers. It,
2: this was a massive loss. He was a doctor over actually at the Wuhan Hospital, and he's believed to be the seventh healthcare worker who has unfortunately died related to the coronavirus. And again, I think it shows that There are so many people who are going to be putting their own health and safety on the line to help get these Canadians back, right? From the stewardess, the the pilot, from all of the different healthcare workers, I think that there are a lot of people right now who are being very brave to help serve our fellow Canadians, and they don't necessarily know the spread or the depth of this disease themselves.
1: Yes, and that was Dr. Louis Jiming. Yes. Yeah, that's a sad story
2: a very sad story another sad story that we're hearing here as well Kathy is that there still seems to be an issue with racism directed towards members of the Chinese community because of coronavirus we're still hearing from restaurants that are saying that they're seeing they're not seeing as many customers coming by and we're still hearing from government officials who are trying to remind Canadians that this is not the way that we get through this
1: Dwight Ball is stepping down as Premier of Newfoundland and Labrador after 5 years of leading the province he just announced And his Liberals were under fire in recent weeks for directing Crown Corporation Nalcor Energy to sign a $350,000 contract with a man who worked closely with a Liberal cabinet minister and has connections to Ball's chief of staff.
2: That's right. Um, So definitely, you know, we're kind of seeing some themes of some crisis across the country. And again, a lot of them related to energy projects. Again, yes. What Dwight Ball is saying is that he does want to take more time to spend with his family as well and kind of go back into his private life. Um, and he is going to be convening a leadership process as well. But, you know, there is a lot happening in Newfoundland and Labrador, Kathy, as you mentioned right now. They're in a minority government, which, which we're seeing in a federal level, can be very difficult to navigate. We do know that Ball will be staying on as premier until a new leader is chosen. He's also going to stay on to keep representing his district in the legislature until the next provincial election. Now, speaking of energy projects, there's another very contentious energy project. That's Muskrat Falls Hydro Dam. And he's going to be keeping, uh, he'll keep working on the budget preparations for that to look at some of the ratepayers and the cost overturns from the electric dam. but. A, there's a lot going on in our country. And it'll be really interesting to see what does happen in that election. And it's worth noting that he was only reelected back in 2019. So he, he hasn't been back long in the second mandate.
1: Isn't his, he is a Scotland-based company, Aberdeen International Associations. And that company was awarded a sole source contract with Nalcor, that energy company, to consult on the same plans that he developed. And that prompted a huge debate in the House last year.
2: You know, stuff like this is always so contentious and so problematic. And I, I do kind of sit and watch these things and ask myself, will they ever learn? I just don't think it's ever a good idea to bring your own personal business into this, right? I always think about poor Jimmy Carter, who had to give up his peanut farm to become president. That's right. And I right. think about where we are now, and that there just seems to be a really, a really different level. But I think even something that might seem as foolish as a peanut farm, you never know when you're in office what sort of resource, what sort of business, what sort of industry will become impacted, will be in crisis, or will need consultation? And I think your only job at that point is to serve your province, your country, what have you. So I think that this, this was never going to work. And I just wonder if there wasn't somebody in his cabinet telling him not to do that.
1: Right. Best not to own a business. It's, you know, it's just Jimmy Carter wrote,
2: get rid of everything, even the peanut farm, if you're going to take office.
1: Yes. And speaking of U.S. politics and peanut farms, now we have... We have a lot going on in the U.S. too. We have Michael Bloomberg jumped in.
2: That's right. That'll be really interesting to see um, the role that he plays in this. I don't know how well he necessarily will relate to the average voter, but it does seem like he has some celebrity support going on.
1: Oh, he's got tons of money. That's what he has going on.
2: Well, and I mean, there's definitely that too. And I think, again, for some of the people like the Stacey Abrams, who we saw, or even the Kamala Harris, this is one of the problems that they're seeing in the States, right? That if you have all of this money, you can run... But if you maybe have, if you're just running on passion, it's not going to necessarily work.
1: No. I would, lived in New York when Bloomberg was running for office, and everyone was saying the reason they were voting for him, like a lot of people were saying, is they felt if somebody could be that successful in business, then perhaps they can run a government.
2: Well, and on the flip side, right, I think that we did see that in the previous American election because there are plenty of Republican voters who I think said very similar things about Donald Trump. About
1: Donald Trump, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And he's already, as of a poll taken today, an NPR poll, uh, Bloomberg was already ranking second if voters were to vote today in, in the Democratic contest.
2: I'm really interested to see where he will end up in Super Tuesday. You know, we've already seen some shifts. I think Elizabeth Warren especially experienced a dramatic shift where somebody like Pete Buttigieg really came across really well also looking at Joe Biden who has been considered the front runner but if some people think that he's too much of a traditional politician it will be interesting to see where Bloomberg does fit into this right somebody like Andrew Yang had to suspend his campaign and I viewed him in a similar light as I did Bloomberg but we'll see they're going to have to pick somebody
1: never boring
2: no certainly never that i have to say it's very enjoyable to watch from afar i do as like it is. that.
1: i always think i always compare us politics to a, a soap opera just tune in any day and Anything could happen.
2: It, it's true. I was a big fan of the show Scandal, and it seems like so many of those plot lines are really just <laughs> becoming American politics. Yes.
1: Oh, my goodness. Well, Caroline, always a great pleasure to talk to you. Thanks so much. Yep. Have a, wonderful, have a wonderful evening, and we will talk to you again. That's Element FM's Parliament Hill reporter, Caroline O'Neill. Coming up next, Cree artist Kent Monkman. I'm Kathy Sabokin. Well, welcome back to Moment of Truth on 106.5 Element FM in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, and on the Radio Player Canada app, and our website, elementfm.ca. That's E-L-M-N-T-F-M dot C-A. I'm Kathy Sabokin. I'm filling in today for David Moses, and my guest is Cree artist Kent Monkman. Kent, welcome to the show.
0: Hi, thanks for having me.
1: So excited to talk to you because... The Metropolitan Museum of Art is featuring two of your ginormous paintings and that's just on another level.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was a, it was an exciting project for sure.
1: Now, how does your art get chosen by the Metropolitan Museum of Art?
0: Well, I was on their radar a few years ago. I was introduced um, to some of the curators there by another curator, uh, Judith Ostrowitz, um, who obviously has has, um, had a long interest in Indigenous artists and art making. And Met was um, researching artists for an exhibition they were doing on the Plains People, and it was a major group exhibition that was going to encompass um, historical work as well as contemporary art. And I was recommended by Judith to the team for that exhibition. But I was disqualified because I'm technically not Plains Cree. I'm Swampy Cree, and they could not include me in that exhibition. But it was uh, kind of fortuitous in the end because had I been included in that exhibition, I probably would have been disqualified for this uh uh, third in the series of met- uh, commissions, new commissions by the Met, and um, so uh, they were familiar with my work already. They started to lay out the series of new commissions, and the and one of the curators, Randall Griffey, came to my studio last summer and did a studio visit. And um, oh, actually, not last summer, the summer before, because we're already uh, almost almost uh, a year and a half uh, from from the first visit. And um, and then it followed up with an invitation to create create this commission.
1: Oh, my gosh. Now, you're the inaugural artist to be featured in the Great Hall. And For those who don't know, when you walk into the Metropolitan Museum of Art, you're in the Great Hall, right? Correct. Like you can't miss you cannot miss your art. And it's giant. Like, what's
0: the specifics? So um, the Great Hall, I, I guess historically, used to hold, uh, show p- paintings. And um, I think they kind of got away from showing uh, large-scale paintings in the Great Hall because uh, a lot of old paintings um, cannot endure the um, shifts in climate that, that happened in, in the, the foyer of the museum because it was probably harder to control the climate there. So um, they got away from showing paintings in the Great Hall, but once upon a time they did. And um, so they, they approached me and I, I proposed um, this concept of, of this diptych, these two paintings, a left and a right painting, that would speak to not just the entrance of the Met, but also to the, the history of of New York, a city, a portal where, where so many millions of, of European immigrants flowed into North America and, uh, and ultimately displacing uh, the first people of this continent. So. The the, the the themes that that kind of emerged through my research and through my my um, thinking about the project was about arrivals and departures and arrivals and displacements and uh, it really seems to, to fit the um, the vibe in the great hall uh, the two paintings are kind of in many ways in many ways they kind of mirror each other there's elements that are flipped in both paintings and um, the, the the great hall is always such a busy place with with Literally, you know, millions of people pass through there every year. So it was a way to speak to um, these themes of, of arrivals and displacements.
1: I just have to ask before we dive a little bit more into the art pieces themselves, is what was your reaction when you found out, yeah, you're doing this? You got picked.
0: Yeah. Um, it's, of course, it's a huge honor. It's an incredible honor to be, to be you know, chosen uh, above. You know, above American artists or uh, other international artists, so it was a real opportunity to, um, to to dig into their collection. They really wanted me to focus on their collection, so uh, I was very excited to do that. And that's something I've done um, quite a few times now. Is uh, you know, essentially looking at the collections, uh, how the museums of this continent have been representing First People and challenging a very one-sided, lopsided version of of the history and the art history of this continent. So. With, with the Met being such a prominent international museum, it, I, I was very excited to, to, to be able to speak to their audience and to also speak to an American audience because um, I feel like they're about a generation behind Canadian institutions in terms of where, where they are with representing Indigenous perspectives in, in their institutions.
1: Even though they have an Indigenous museum, Downtown meant Rights, yeah, and Downtown
0: Manhattan. yeah you know the Smithsonian is still uh you know still kind of follows uh, an anthropological model ethn- ethnological um and i I feel like the you know the Met is is more of a mainstream, in- so I feel like uh what happens at the Smithsonian is really very different than what happens in mainstream museums and you know a lot of my work has been about um, decolonizing or at least decentering the perspectives of these uh, colonial institutions, and they are all colonial institutions, including the Smithsonian, very much so, especially the uh, the Native American Museum there, because it's very much about uh, a settler perspective still on Indigenous cultures. And even though they have, you know, Indigenous curators, I I still feel like that model... um, It's
1: an old model, yeah, I hear you. It's an old
0: model, yeah. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Now, okay, so two giant works, Wooden Boat People, I could not say the word in the Indigenous language. How, is, how yeah, do I so say it? So uh,
0: it's Mistagosawak.
1: That's not so hard. And, Mistagosawak. And,
0: yeah. Okay. Yeah, Mistagosawak is a Cree word. And, you know, m- many years ago it was used to speak um, uh, specifically about uh, the French, uh, okay. and the translation means wooden boat people, but it kind of, you know, expanded to include other European people as well. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, with the themes of, of the 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 um, the sea uh, the seawater, uh, the arrival of the Europeans to North America uh, in wooden boats, and then uh, the displacement of the Indigenous people. It seemed like a good title.
1: Yeah, and I really get that sense when I look at the picture of, the, of what happened. The storytelling is really strong in your pictures.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, one thing that I was drawn to in terms of art history was the power of painting to tell stories, to hold narratives, and you know in in you know western art history the the pinnacle of 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 western painting in my opinion was in the 19th century when uh the great history paintings were still being made and and people were still um conveying stories and narratives through painting and then of course you know uh modernity arrived and and uh and and the palette, uh, the vocabulary of painting kind of got chipped away through through the modernism and the reduction of of uh, the, the vocabulary of painting into sort of smaller and smaller um, elements and components. And so, uh, you know, as an outsider, as a Cree person, I'm looking at that art history, thinking, hmm, you know, you guys really threw out your best stuff. Yeah. So I also saw the relevance for you know history painting to. Convey indigenous histories or indigenous experiences, both past and present, because our our histories uh, were never uh, painted um, by, or you know, never entered this canon of art history. Uh, Essentially, indigenous people were erased from art history through through the lens of the European settlers that were looking at uh, indigenous North America.
1: I did not know that it was erased Hmm. for Mm -hmm. like a long time.
0: Yeah, yeah, so essentially you're you're you know the settlers you know had their eyes on indigenous people but it was really just uh, you know a very limited understanding of indigenous people was all, and 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 if indigenous people were, were in their paintings at all it was really just about their fantasies and their projections of who indigenous yeah, people very stereotypical mhm
1: yeah and it seemed their goal was to and take so, over
0: yeah and there's you know as i've researched the art history of this continent you know i've I, I see major gaps in terms of the, the storytelling and so with my project to, to sort of harness this great um, idiom of painting what i've what i've set out to do is to uh, reestablish and authorize indigenous experience into the canon of art history and, and the met project was was an opportunity to do that, an opportunity to do that on on a mon- on a monumental scale
1: so a lot more goes into creating an artwork than one might think <laughs> a lot going well, on there.
0: When, yeah, so I was able to research in the collection and find all find all kinds of um, points of departure and inspiration from, you know, from paintings and sculptures and representations of indigenous people from the 19th century. You know, artists that were looking at indigenous people and were really fixated on on a, on a variety of themes. But one of them was a was again this this um, prevalent theme of the time, which which was that indigenous people were disappearing forever and. Uh, there was a kind of uh, romantic grief associated with that. So uh, I was able to kind of co-opt those images and, and uh, bring them into my paintings and restore, you know, the, the, the image of, of, of Indigenous people as living, breathing, thriving uh, people
3: yes. and
0: uh, kind of remove that concept of grief and death that, that was so, uh, part, so much a part of those sculptures and paintings at that time.
1: You are listening to Moment of Truth on 106.5, Element FM in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, and on the Radio Player Canada app and our website, elementfm.ca, that's E-L-M-N-T-F-M dot C-A. I'm Kathy Sabokin, filling in for David Moses, and I'm having a conversation with Cree artist Kent MacMan. The Metropolitan Museum of Art commissioned two of his paintings, for its great hall, if you've never been there, it's gotta be on everyone's list to go see the Metropolitan Museum of Art. That's incredible. Okay. Any other artists that you admire or, or can, or in any other direction that you think Indigenous artists are taking a direction that, that is more educational storytelling and kind of shaking up the art world a little bit.
0: Well, you know, I, there are so many incredible indigenous artists across North America, and it, I, 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 I take inspiration from many of them. Um, you know, filmmakers like Zacharias Kunuk, um, storytellers like Thompson Highway, and novelist playwright, um, uh, and and various other artists, uh, visual artists. It's just that uh, so often uh, indigenous uh, voices and. Um, our art artworks are kind of relegated to uh, the ethnological wing. Um, you know, we, we our voices are, are need to be seen and heard in in the main in the mainstream venues, and, and I think that this this opportunity at the Met really um, uh, points in that direction. And I hope that they will continue to to invite other indigenous artists to exhibit at the Met. Um, and, and I, I'm hoping that, that other mainstream institutions across, across North America will also do the same.
1: Just a side question. How does the art, an art piece work that size, those two paintings, like back in the day, you know, we have these visions of Michelangelo got on ladders or however, to paint the Sistine Chapel. Like, how does your art get on the, on the wall?
0: So, yeah, well, I have a studio. Um, I have 17 assistants now and uh, 10 other wow. painters. So I have a, a You are large Michelangelo. <laughs> And uh, these these paintings uh, were were created in a relatively short period of time. Uh, we had about eight months from the time uh, I, I, got, I had the contract signed and, and we got busy on them, so it was a really short period of time. But, you know, this this um, project kind of came to me at the right time in my career when I had really scaled up my, my studio practice to a point where I could accept something like this and, and be able to pull it off. And, you know, in the past few years, I've worked very closely with a very talented Team of of artists, and we have figured out uh, my own unique way of making uh, paintings. And it you know it it begins with my research and my sketches. And from the sketches, we then um, go to uh, a photo stage where we um, we cast uh, models and we you know both indigenous and non indigenous people um, in the poses that I've established in these through these pencil compositions. And we stage them in these digital photo shoots with my own specific lighting and costumes, and and then from that wow. stage, uh, yeah, and then color studies are then made. Uh, with smaller scale studies are then made, and I sort out a lot of the compositional um, problems. It's very much like kind of you know um, solving a puzzle because there's so many elements that have to be sorted out. And then from there, uh, we go to the larger scale. So this is all part of the process uh, that I've developed with my team over the past few years. And it it really enables me to work at this scale. You know, in the studio, we have, uh, we, we, we built scaffolding um, and risers, and uh, we have people moving up and down on these paintings and uh, several people working on, on, on each painting at any given time. So it's a very um, uh, ordered and planned um uh, practice where, where things are, are, have to be sort of sorted out in advance and, and the painters are given strong direction and they're, they're taught in my studio how I want them to paint and um, they're, they're able to work in, in the style that I work in and then you know I direct all the way through and I, I work on the paintings a lot myself, of course. And, um, and then they're finally finished, uh, uh, with, with a great deal of team effort. But this was a, this was a huge project for my studio and we worked, um, almost entirely on this project, uh, as a team for,
1: for long to get, like eight months. So in taken each off the
0: stretchers, each and rolled up. And <laughs> oh, so it, you roll <laughs>
1: them up. Okay.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: And then how did, how are they transported? Have to be like with they're such transported care in
0: crates oh yeah mm-hmm. they're transported by professional art shippers who came in and took them off the stretchers and then at the other end um there was a team that was commissioned by the met uh they didn't even use their own installation team i think at that point um i was president for the installation and that was a kind of that was an exciting moment to see the paintings um uh, go up, uh, in the great hall, um, with a, with a team of, uh, installation professionals doing it at that end.
1: Incredible. Each measuring mm-hmm. 11 feet by 22 feet. Mm-hmm. Do you have a whole team working with you for all of your art? i
0: have yeah, seen so, a lot yeah,
1: of your I, art. I, it's fantastic.
0: Yeah. So I, uh, you know, I, I scaled up my team over the last uh, few years, but, um, you know they work with me constantly, and I employ people on a full-time basis. Um, I like to keep them on. Uh, you know, every every person that works with me is I see them as as a, an investment of of, uh, of my time and energy as well. So I like to keep people as long as possible. And some of my team members have been with me for as long as ten years. And um, so there's a lot of people that stick around, and I, I like to think that I treat them well enough to keep them along for a long time <laughs> a
1: wonderful opportunity and is it a fully indigenous team
0: uh we have some indigenous people but um you know essentially uh, when i'm when i'm looking for hiring we we look at at, at uh, candidates from every ethnicity and background and you know this is this is this is about uh looking for the right person to fit uh the right position and uh, but we're always looking for indigenous people we're always looking for um, Indigenous uh, models and actors to come and work with us on our shoots, and we're developing a large roster of, of people that, that work with us in, in the photo shoots as well.
1: Good to know. Kent Monkman, look him up. Now, I saw I was watching some videos, Urban Res Series. What's that all about? You were in Winnipeg's North End.
0: Mm-hmm. So that was a series I created to... Um, there were a few themes in those in those paintings, but I really wanted um, you know Canadians uh, to think about uh, this idea of erasure and this amnesia that was imparted by modernity, which really encouraged you know you know European settlers came here and they kind of wanted a blank slate, so they you know it was at the expense of Indigenous people that all of our all of our histories, our languages, um, our, our 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 gathering places were kind of you know um obliterated and uh places like winnipeg were indigenous um gathering places they were places where indigenous people live lived and still live but yet we live in a culture where people just you know very conveniently want to forget you know recently you know um canadians have been doing land acknowledgments and and that's something that some people wonder why we do that well, it's it's a it's something that um, it, it's from in, an indigenous way of thinking that you're acknowledging the territory of the of the people that you're that you're visiting, and um, it's a, it's a reminder for people to kind of you know to, to to help combat that erasure, that that amnesia that that most most North Americans have about about this continent that this was all indigenous territory at one point. So, you know, making these paintings situating contemporary First Nations people in these urban settings was a reminder that we're very much alive and well and our spirituality is present and our cultures are, are present and we're reclaiming our languages and we're reclaiming our cultures. And, and most of us live in urban centers now and, and, and that's something that, I, that I, I wanted people to really think about.
1: Great to hear your passion. What's next for you?
0: Well, right now, we're researching and developing uh, an exhibition for the Royal Ontario Museum here in Toronto, which will open in uh, 2021. So it'll be another collection-based project um, where I'm looking at um, their collection, which is very vast and diverse and wonderful. Everything from dinosaurs to uh, gemstones to uh, ornithology um, to uh, Indigenous material costuming, you name it, I'm kind of looking at everything and thinking about how those things could be curated into my exhibition, but also how I might take inspiration from them to create the, uh, the seven or eight paintings that I'm going to be making for that exhibition.
1: And will they be ginormous as well?
0: There will be uh, at least one ginormous painting. Uh, 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 it's a very uh, important um, moment in Canadian history. I don't want to give it away. Okay. But uh, it has never been painted, and, it, and, and I think most Canadians don't even know about it. So it's a way of authorizing you know, Indigenous history to the canon. And um, so that'll, that'll be kind of like a focus or a center point for that, for that exhibition. And there'll be a number of other paintings that will, that will kind of work along with it thematically.
1: Kent, you're amazing, and you're doing just such great work. Thank you so much.
0: Well, thank you, and I I appreciate you having me on your show. Thanks so much.
1: Thank you. We look forward to the ROM.
0: Okay, thanks. All right. Coming soon. All righty.
1: Bye now. You're listening to Moment of Truth on 106.5 Element FM in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, and on the Radio Player Canada app or our website, elementfm.ca. That's E-L-M-N-T-F-M I'm Kathy Sabokin filling in for David Moses. I was just speaking with Cree artist Kent Monkman. You are listening to Moment of Truth on 106.5 Element FM in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. I'm Kathy Sabokin, filling in for David Moses. And with us on the line is Dr. Kim Stanton. She's a lawyer with Goldblatt Partners in Toronto and she works in the Aboriginal Law Group. Welcome, Kim. Thank you for taking the time to speak with it's us. It's my
3: pleasure. Thank you.
1: Just wanted to give you a shout because there's there's so many deeper issues or that we might not be aware of when we're talking about wet it in land rights, treaty rights, and I was hoping you could break some of that down for us. Sure. So why is that land so contentious?
3: I think it's important to understand that in British Columbia, for most of the province, what's now British Columbia, no treaties were negotiated or signed um, prior to the last few years. So, Um, East of the Rockies, of course, there's treaties uh, between the Crown and Indigenous peoples that cover most of the territory, but that's not the case west of the Rockies. And the Wet'suwet'en people have uh, not been conquered and they have not negotiated a treaty. So their ancestral territories are subject to Wet'suwet'en law, and Canada thinks that they're subject to Canadian law, and that causes some difficulties. Well, there Um, we have it. Yes. (laughs) So there are band uh, councils and band elected chiefs um, who have jurisdiction for areas under the Indian Act only. So those are the small reserve areas uh, in that territory, but the larger ancestral territory is uh, Wet'suwet'en, ancestral territory and not subject to uh, the Indian Act in their view. So it's a, it is a it is a challenge, but many Canadians don't understand that there are actually multiple sets of laws operating in what is now Canada. There's Indigenous laws in different territories, and there's Canadian law, and the difficulty is trying to navigate how we understand those operating alongside one another, and that's where the tension comes in.
1: And let's just review for everyone. There, there was approval given for a gas link to go through the Wet'suwet'en traditional territory, which is unceded yes. land. So, when we say unceded, is is that where you're saying because they were never conquered? That's they right. Never they never signed didn't a, treaty. a
3: treaty with the crown. That's right. So those territories uh, are not uh, subject from the Wet'suwet'en point of view. To um, the you know to the Indian Act, uh, other than the small pieces that are um, reserves, and so it's yeah it's uh, it's also important to know that the Wet'suwet'en people uh, started a case in 1984 to have their title declared there by the Canadian courts, and that um, process. Wended its way through the BC courts until 1997, when the Supreme Court of Canada said um, that it needed to go back to a new trial because there were some problems with the pleadings. Um, but what the governments or sorry, what the court said at the time was that the Crown had a moral obligation to negotiate a settlement with the Wet'suwet'en and Gitsan peoples. And um, of course, at that point, the two Nations had been in the courts for 13 years. It's an extremely resource-intensive, expensive process, and uh, it was sent back for a new trial and they were to start all over again. Uh, And so the court said, look, really what is needed here is negotiation, and it directed the Crown to do that, but that didn't occur, uh, or at least if it did, it didn't result in anything. And so we find ourselves in a situation where the Wet'suwet'en people have tried to use Canadian law, but uh, are left in a place where they are asserting Wet'suwet'en law because they haven't been able to get recognition of their title under Canadian law.
1: Well, we're talking about the land. How, do you know how big the land is that we're talking about here? Their territory.
3: I think it's something like 20,000 square kilometers, but I'm not certain. I would have to check that for you. I'm sorry.
1: Because I'm sure a lot of Canadians are thinking, why can't the pipeline go around? Why does it have to go right through their territory?
3: Yes, I understand that the Wet'suwet'en had actually proposed a different. Uh, route mm-hmm. some years ago to Coastal Gas Link, but it was um, declined. And I don't know the details on that.
1: Okay. So there's a lot going on here. Oh, it my goodness. Is. Definitely yeah. is. What might it take to, to resolve the blockades and, and this whole I- I- issue? Any thoughts on this?
3: Well, I think it will take what uh, the court directed, which is good faith negotiation on the part of the Crown. They need to sit down and meet with all of the people involved here. So the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs, the band councils and chiefs, everyone needs to get in a room and talk about this. It's frustrating, I'm sure, for many people to be um, caused inconvenience by the various have been trying to ad- address this since at least 1984. You can imagine how frustrating it is for them. And it's the um, Wet'suwet'en uh, hereditary chiefs who brought that case back in 1984. It was understood that they represented the Wet'suwet'en nation. And really, you know, the Indian Act is, of course, um, a totally racist piece of legislation that was brought in in 1876 by the colonial government to r- reduce the ability of Indigenous people to govern their own lands. And uh, it has continued in that manner ever since. And over the years, things like the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples, and the Truth and Reconciliation Commission have, to, have said, look, this is a situation that needs to change. This kind of legislation doesn't reflect the right to self-determination that Indigenous peoples have under international law. And so what is required is meaningful negotiation between the Canadian state and Indigenous peoples.
1: Why is it taking so long to get rid of the Indian Act? <laughs> and that's a long time.
3: It is a long time. There's been, uh, I mean, of course, the Trudeau government tried to get rid of it in 1969, and there was an uproar from Indigenous communities at the time, because at that time, the Indian Act was the only recognition that there is a distinctive nature to the Uh, title and rights of Indigenous peoples in Canada. And so wholesale, just getting it off the books and starting from nothing isn't the right approach. But so ever since then, there have been a lot of discussions about how to replace it and remove it. The Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples in 1996, when it reported, uh, provided a sort of roadmap for restructuring the relationship between Indigenous peoples and the governments of the state... And uh, that largely wasn't adopted. Most of those recommendations were not adopted. And, of course, there would be some change to them now. Um, since the Truth and Reconciliation Commission calls to action, there is another uh, framework that's suggested, which is the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Yes. And and that is uh, referred to often as UNDRIP uh, as a, the acronym. And it's uh, really the product of several decades of negotiations worldwide by Indigenous leaders to produce a declaration that is reflective of Indigenous rights, and self-determination is one of those rights included in there. And, of course, it also includes the right to free prior and informed consent, which is also very much at issue on Wet'suwet'en territory, because the hereditary chiefs say, you know, this Gas line is being put through without our free, prior, and informed consent, and it's important that much more conversation occur before any such large project go through.
1: Yes, I, I was just doing some reading of comments that people are making back to the Wet'suwet'en land that, and the protests that they aren't just that they aren't just protests. They, these are really demonstrations to say we don't want government using RCMP to violently take down people who are living on their own territory. So yeah, it just go- I think it goes- protest
3: is a misnomer, to be honest. Uh, it's the assertion of sovereignty by the Wet'suwet'en people. And also, of course, I mean, the. it's important to understand the relationship with police uh, and Indigenous people is a fraught one. Um, we've seen, you know, especially in Northern BC, Human Rights Watch put out a report in 2013, I think it was, called Those Who Take Us Away, and it detailed the violence against Indigenous women by police in that territory, and of course the RCMP are also associated with being the ones who came and took the children away for residential schools. So there's a long history of very difficult relationship between police and Indigenous people. And uh, the National Inquiry on Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and the Truth and Reconciliation Commission both talked about how policing needs to change its culture. Um, so there's, you know, there's that problematic aspect of sending in the RCMP. The, uh, but of course, the, the underlying un- <laughs> problematic aspect is that this is an assertion of sovereignty by the Wet'suwet'en people according to Wet'suwet'en law. And even actually um, in, in accordance with Canadian law, Canadian law says that if you are to have a declaration of Aboriginal title, then you have to show uh, exclusive occupation of the land and um, at, the, at the time of uh, the assertion of sovereignty by the Canadian state, and that you have enforced that occupation and so you have to show that you are making efforts to keep others out of the territory. And so, ironically, in you know today, we're seeing that the Wet'suwet'en people's blockades to their land, which ind- should have indicated to outsiders that that is their territory and that you need their permission to cross it, rule of law by the Canadian state, when actually it's anything but.
1: Well, they seem to at least. I guess a positive out of all of this is it's opening up conversation. It's always more interviews like this. Like, please teach us more about treaties and and who owns what and and why this is so contentious. So I, I think it's good we're opening talks and conversations.
3: It always is. And I mean, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission exhorted Canadians to learn about our history, to understand the treaties, to get a sense of how we're all treaty people and to uh and in cases where there aren't treaties to understand that history as well, so really, what we want to have is more dialogue and more understanding and more learning, and certainly at all costs to avoid violence.
1: do you feel we have been making any progress in terms of truth and reconciliation? might not seem so by the current situation, but thoughts? it's it's it, it, <laughs>
3: It's complicated. I think that there is some progress being made in some ways. There are, you know, Some people have really taken it on to review the calls to action and, um, and not wait for governments to affect them, but to do the things that are possible to do ourselves. And there's plenty in there that we can all take on and start with. Um, and to educate ourselves is, is a very important step. But then we see situations like this, where there really is still a remarkable level of ignorance in the broader population about the history, about the land, about the sacred connection to the land that the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs are illustrating. And so, it's—I uh, don't think you, you can sort of make a proclamation across the board that yes, reconciliation is progressing because I think in some ways there are improvements and in others we're just as racist a society as we have been for many, many years.
1: And, and a lot of judgment, a lot of stereotyping. Hopefully we can move on from that.
3: Ideally, yes. yes.
1: Well, Kim, I thank you so much. We really appreciate your time and you've clarified quite a bit. It's my pleasure. I'm glad it was helpful. Thank you. Thank you. Been speaking with Dr. Kim Stanton. She's a lawyer at Goldblatt Partners in Toronto in the Aboriginal Law Group. And you are listening to Moment of Truth on 106.5 Element FM in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. You can also find us on the Radio Player Canada app or on our website elementfm.ca. That's e l m n t f m.ca. I'm Kathy Subokan, and It is my pleasure to fill in for David Moses. Have a great evening.